Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. And we're very happy to have you with us today. Well, Tom, we want to dive right in. Uh, you have played a leading part in a statement that has been released, the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. Everything was perfectly peaceful until you have written up this document, Tom. What do you have to say for yourself? Guilty as charged, <laughs> except Whoops. I wasn't alone in it. <laughs> no, uh, Jared, this is a, a document, as you know, that came out of a, a meeting back in June that took place in Dallas when about uh, 15 to 17 men got together uh, out of our common concern over what we saw taking place within the evangelical world under this uh, broad kind of nebulous concept of social justice. And we shared similar concerns. We thought we did before we got in the room together. And then during our time that day together, it became crystal clear that we were all seeing the same things the same way and that we uh, felt a burden to try to address these issues because we believe that they are threatening to the gospel. So out of that, the decision was made to write a statement, hopefully that would be useful, that we would then publish for the broader evangelical community to look at and to become a point of conversation. So that's what this statement is that has just been released. Yeah, I've got the introduction here. You mentioned the language of social justice in the very heading of the statement. I want to read part of the introduction, and why don't you just tell me a little bit about what's behind these words. It says, specifically, we are deeply concerned that values borrowed from secular culture are currently undermining scripture in the areas of race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, and human sexuality. The Bible's teaching on each of these subjects is being challenged under the broad and somewhat nebulous rubric of concern for social justice if the doctrines of God's word are not uncompromisingly reasserted and defended at these points, there is every reason to anticipate that these dangerous ideas and corrupted moral values will spread their influence into other realms of biblical doctrines and principles. You say uh, this, this challenge is coming from the somewhat nebulous rubric of concern for social justice. Are you not concerned with people living justly in the world? Absolutely. Uh, we are concerned about justice, but we're concerned about justice biblically defined and not justice as it is defined by uh, different sociologists and psychologists and from uh, the world of various uh, secular ethics and, and theories that have kind of infiltrated into the church of late. So that's our concern. For example, let me mention intersectionality, which is an ideology that uh, comes from a, a worldview that says that the more different minority statuses that you can multiply to identify yourself by, the, the greater your authority to speak to various issues and the greater your victimhood. So uh, a white male who is a heterosexual basically has zero standing in intersectionality. But if I were a homosexual, I would have that going in my favor. Uh, a, a black male heterosexual has some status in intersectionality because he's a part of a minority race. If he were a homosexual, he would have two statuses in his favor uh, because he would be a part of a minority, they say, sexually as well as ethnically. If a person was a black female, she would have even more because she's a woman. 
as well as being in a minority uh, ethnicity. If she were a lesbian woman, she would have more yet. If she were a transgendered lesbian uh, woman, if that's possible, uh, she would have even more levels of uh, oppression that she could appeal to. Well, let's ask about that. I mean, it surely sounds like, wouldn't you acknowledge that those people um, have suffered greatly if you're in those categories? Don't you kind of have a right to be heard over others who haven't suffered in those ways? So yeah, some people, no doubt, have suffered because uh, of their skin color or because they have given themselves over to a certain sexual lifestyle and have been regarded on the basis of that lifestyle that they have chosen as their identity. So there's no doubt that people have been treated unjustly. And wherever injustice, according to the Bible, exists, we should resist it and we should try to correct it. However, it is wrong to say that because I am a certain uh, class of person, I identify myself either racially or by sexual lust or some other way, therefore I have a higher authority to speak to certain issues. That's not true. That's a type of Gnosticism that says there's a secret kind of knowledge that only those who are in my category can access. Yeah, you say here in the introduction to the document, in the process of considering these matters, we have been reminded of the essentials of the faith, once for all handed down to the saints, and we are recommitted to contend for it. Uh, it sounds like you're making a distinction between some essentials of the faith, uh, the things that are core, the things that are central, and other things. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, we're hearing today that everything's a gospel issue. You know, we're told that uh, thinking about slavery is a gospel issue. Thinking about sexual identity is a gospel issue. Thinking about status as a man or woman is a gospel issue. And Though many people mean by that, that these are implications of the gospel, there are others who clearly mean by that, that if you are not seeing these things the way that they insist they must be seen, then you're not having the gospel. Uh, for example, we've got a professor at King's College who has said, here's the truth, evangelicalism has never had the gospel. And the reason being that he sees evangelicalism, in America at least, as being guilty of, or at least complicit in, the repression of uh, racial minorities. And because of that, he says this has been a white movement, evangelicalism has been, and many white evangelicals owned slaves and promoted slavery, defended slavery, therefore they could not have had the gospel. It's impossible to have the gospel and be guilty of those types of uh, failures to apply the gospel. So what would be your recommendation? What would you hope people do uh, when it comes to the essentials of the faith over and against some of these other things that we can become entangled in? I would hope that people would read this document and take their Bibles out, look at the verses of scriptures that are used as proof texts for each affirmation and denial, and look them up and study them and say, is this true? Is this faithful to scripture or is it not? If it's not faithful to scripture, reject it, but then also let us know because we want to have the debate. Uh, about these issues that are set forth in this document. If it is, if what is set forth here is, it accords with Scripture, which we think it does, then measure everything else in the light of what Scripture teaches on these issues. That's what we're trying to do, is to establish, again, parameters directly from the Bible so that these various issues under the broad rubric of social justice that are coming into the churches today can be identified as either consistent with what the Bible teaches or a threat to and contradictory to what the Bible teaches. And we think many of them are exactly a threat. Yeah, you mentioned people just reading the document. And I've got to say, one of the 
big, confusing, somewhat humorous things that lies behind this document is the fact that already there's just been um, such a um, kind of a great ruckus that has attended the document. It seems like people um, are almost afraid of the document. It seems to be a very measured, thoughtful, um, critical analysis of particular topics and doctrines based on the Word of God. But people say, oh, no, 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 this must be, there, there must be some vendetta uh, with this document. There must be some uh, attack that's going on with this document. What is that silliness all about in the broader Reformed evangelical culture? Why do we not just want to take the words and examine them according to the Scriptures? You know, that's a good question. I don't have an answer for that that would uh, satisfy, I'm sure, everyone's concerns. Uh, I do think some... Are, or might be a little threatened by this statement or else think this statement will unnecessarily be divisive and it's coming out uh, uh, thinking that it will pit people against each other or declare war on certain institutions or movements. That is not our intent at all. Our intent is to set forth what we are convinced of that comes from Scripture and to declare that these things cannot be compromised. If they're true to Scripture, then they ought to be asserted and they ought to be defended. And we fear, in fact, which beyond fear, we're convinced that at many points what we're asserting in these, these, these articles have been attacked and undermined and dismissed. And so they need to be discussed. I don't, I don't know exactly what all the concern is, but that's some of it. Well, the concern causes me to uh, think... Uh, again, about how important this document is. I'll tell you one of the funny things that's happened in the conversations that I've had is on the one hand, I've heard people say, um, well, you know, hey, do we really need this document? Uh, these aren't really important issues. They're, you know, these are just plain things. Of course, uh, we're, we're clear-headed about these topics of justice and race and ethnicity. There's no need for this document. And then on the other hand, uh, the same people have been saying, you can't release this document. I mean, there's no way yeah. you can release this document because it's going to divide us. We're not on the same page on these matters, and and this is just going to cause too much problem. Well, I'm thinking you can't have it both ways. That's exactly you, right. You can't say on the one hand, well, no, we all know we're clear-headed on what justice is and on what the gospel is, and then on the other hand say, oh, no, there's going to be this great uh, division that's come about. At least we could step back and say, hey, this is an important document, just as uh, the articles say or the introduction says, we're submitting these for public consideration. Please take time and think through them. And don't just follow along with whoever else is there. Don't think, oh, if I sign this, it's not going to be strategic for me. Or, oh, if I do this, this is what people are going to think. We hear all of that rigmarole. We need to just say, is it true to Scripture or not? Because it's clearly important. I don't think anybody can look at this document and say all oh, these things aren't important. Colossians 2.8 is cited in the introduction. Uh, the statement says, The Apostle Paul's warning to the Colossians is greatly needed today. And then the quote from Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is a danger. We are always in danger of being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit uh, by human tradition, things that are untethered from Christ, things that are untethered from his word. So I surely hope that this document will go a long way to uh, helping the church um, obey Colossians. Amen. That's the purpose for which it is being sent forth. Well, I hope we get to talk about this statement of affirmations and denials in weeks to come.
We want to talk about a book that has been influential in both of our lives, a book um, that almost caused a breaking in our friendship. You know that? I don't remember that. You don't remember the story? Well, well, you, well you'll you have to tell it. You should remember the story. Um, I was standing in front of a sea of people being questioned by you so that that congregation <laughs> could know whether I was fit to serve them as a pastor. And you told me you were going to ask me very simple questions like about justification and conversion and things like that. <laughs> and, and then out of the blue, without any uh, preparation, you said, have you read Pilgrim's Progress? And I said, no. And oh. the gasp that uh, <laughs> went across the room of that congregation um, everybody was shrieking, and uh, then you said your famous line, which you say always, which is? You might be able to get to heaven without having read Pilgrim's Progress, but why in the world would you take that chance? So you questioned my salvation in the midst of everybody that I was seeking to pastor. So, But wait a minute, did, did, you act, did they actually call you to... Were we okay with you going ahead and being a pastor? They're forgiving congregations. Wow. So, wow. yes, they did that. And I went and read the book as fast as I could. So, And I'm very glad I did. Um, why don't I sketch the book, and then I'm going to ask you your favorite part. But okay. uh, Pilgrim's Progress is a story written by John Bunyan. He tells the story of a man named Christian who lived in the city of destruction. He had a burden on his back, and he had a book in his hand. And he met an evangelist who told him uh, the way to be relieved of his burden. Christian is set out on um, the King's Highway, and he heads toward the Celestial City. And on that journey, he runs into all sorts of people, all sorts of friends, all sorts of enemies. But the grace of God continues to um, sustain him and propel him toward the Celestial City until he finally arrives. And there's so many good things uh, about this book. It's so helpful when we think about the Christian life. But, Tom, what's one of your favorite parts of Pilgrim's Progress? Well, you and I have discussed this before, and I think we share uh, this in common. There, there are several, no doubt, places in Pilgrim's Progress that are so valuable. Uh, let me just mention one where Christian first meets Apollyon. He's on the pathway. He's got his armor on. He's headed to the celestial city. And here is this fierce fiend that straddles the path in front of him and will not let him pass and threatens him and entices him, uh, tempts him, and then begins to make accusations against him. And he says, well, you know, you really belong to me. And whenever you talk about uh, all the things that you've done, uh, you do so with vainglory, and you fell asleep, and you lost your scroll, and all these accusations. And what Bunyan does so wisely is he puts into Christian's mouth a response that all of us as Christians need to keep at the front of our minds. And that is when he responds to the accusation of the devil, he doesn't say, hey, it's not as bad as that, or no, I'm not that, or no, you're not speaking truthfully. He says, everything you say is true and more. Then he goes on to say, but the prince whom I serve is full of mercy and he forgives. And that's how Christians need to live. I've actually taken that section of Pilgrim's Progress and just read it in counseling sessions before to get people to see that the ground on which we stand is ground of grace and mercy before God, not ground of performance. And if we're hoping that our performance is good enough to cause God to accept us and the devil to uh, leave us alone, then we will never uh, get, get, gain any ground whatsoever. It's like on a treadmill. But if we get on the ground of mercy and grace, that yes, uh, I'm a wicked sinner, I have not lived as I ought to live, I have broken God's commandments, and even as a Christian with the grace of God and the Spirit of God living in me, I still fall short. Nevertheless, I'm depending upon my merciful master, not upon my performance then we were able to resist the devil and we're able to continue on the faith 
in the faith, repenting, believing, getting up, starting again. Yeah, I don't know any more powerful truth in thinking about ways to lay down at night and know that we're forgiven. Think about the devil, his accusations. The problem is um, many of his accusations are true. They're true about us, and that could just crush us uh, if we didn't have Christ. We know that Christ uh, leans in and has his wounds there and says, yeah, I covered that one too. Amen. I mean, boy, once we get that... um, I've been so helped to not defend myself when people come at me and say, well, it's probably true. Yeah. Um, I think of uh, kind of an often refrain that we hear today, which is um, can always be said as, well, you could have been more loving. You could have been more gracious. We true. hear that a lot today. True. <laughs> you say, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's going to be true every day of the week. There's yeah. not a day of the week that I couldn't love my wife better or love my kids better or be more gracious or have said things better than I could have. Yeah. And you just want to defend, well, I was gracious enough. I was loving enough. <laughs> well, no, it's all true. It's I all have true. a great Savior who yeah. is ready to forgive me. Hey, you know, another good section in Pilgrim's Progress that I love is in part two is with Valiant for Truth. The, he's this guy that great heart who's leading Christiana and uh, Christian's family toward the celestial city, and they come upon him and he's he's there and he's got blood all over him. He's got this sword in his hand and he just looks like a warrior that's just been in a fight. So they question him, discover that he is his name is Valiant for Truth, and he has just been in a fight. He said there are three ruffians that had laid hold of him, and the the name of those ruffians are ignorance. Our, yeah, ignorance, uh, wildhead, and officious, yeah, which uh, it's not officious. That's what it means today. Um, I forget the name, but anyway, it's like being officious. It's an old English name, but it hold means, on, it's like being officious. Now help no, us out right officious. there. It yes. is officious. It's it's uh, being overbearing. Overbearing. You know, overbearing. Okay. That kind of idea. So Bunyan describes fighting them for I think over three hours, and then when they heard they heard. Greatheart coming, they left, and he says, yeah, I've got blows on me, but I left blows on them too. And what Bunyan is teaching us there is not about the the enemies outside of us. He's teaching us, if you're going to be valiant for truth, there are enemies that you're going to have to fight in order to do your job well, but those enemies live within you. Mm-hmm. Ignorance and wildhead, you know, just always angling for a fight, and uh, this idea of being overbearing and dogmatic. Those are the enemies in the heart of anyone who really wants to be valiant for truth, and we've got to fight hard against our own hearts and the sin that remains in our own hearts. But Bunyan's just filled with good insight, Mm. so I recommend the book. As we contend for uh, the truth while seeking to remain humble, tenderhearted, just a quick list of principles, what are some things that can help us to do that? I think we have to always remember what we were, what we would be, apart from God's grace. To think that if God dealt with us for one millisecond the way that we deserve to be dealt with, we would have no hope of standing anywhere. We'd be in hell. Mm. And the fact that we are what we are, we've attained what we've attained by His grace. Anything that we understand, anything that we have come to to see and know and believe, it's all by His grace. Mm -hmm. And if Mm -hmm. that's the truth... Then how in the world can we look down our noses at others, or uh, just be impatient with others? Uh, uh, it's um, John Newton who tells this great story about uh, a blind man who receives a sight. He said, "You know, what would you think of that blind man who receives his sight miraculously, then picks up a club and goes and beats up other blind men because they can't see?" <laughs> you know? Well, that's that should never be us. It should right. never be us.
We want to talk about God's commands. Uh, surely we are not saved by obeying God's law. We are saved because Christ has obeyed God's law for us. And we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as those who have been saved by his grace, we want to run in the ways of his commandments. And so we want to start with Exodus 20 and walk through the Ten Commandments today in this episode, starting with the first commandment. I'm going to read the introduction to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and then the first commandment. And then I want to talk about this with you. Exodus 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What does that introduction have to tell us about the Ten Commandments that follow? It tells us that these commandments are being given to a people who have been shown incredible grace, a people who have been rescued, who have been saved out of the bondage of uh, Egypt. And so what, what we see in the very preface is that what follows, follows from a God who is saving, a God who is full of grace. Now, this is not a prescription on how to get right with this God. This is rather a revelation of what this saving God calls his people to be and do. Yeah, and I think about he's he's our God, or as verse 2 says, I'm the Lord, your God. Mm -hmm. I'm the God who saved you, and uh, I'm yours. You belong to me now. God is Father. He's our Father, and so now uh, we want to do what he says. And so the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are to acknowledge that there's only one God, the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, who's most fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ, is the one true living God, and he is to be acknowledged as such. We are to worship him alone. Uh, We are to seek his glory above uh, all else. We are to esteem him and honor him. We are to adore him. We are to love him, desire him, fear him. Uh, above any other entity because he or being because he is the uh, greatest of all beings so as the one true god he deserves to be known and honored and revered as he really is yeah i think about the implications of this for the way that we engage those outside of the church those who are not believers we often think that well we want them to worship god We want to invite them to church, and it would be great if they did worship God along with us, but we forget that this first commandment is binding upon them too. That's right. They're not only, it wouldn't only be a great thing if they did worship God, but they have a duty to worship God. He's their creator as well. He has made them. He has given them everything that they have, and uh, it is a foolish thing not to believe in God. It's a foolish thing not to worship God. I think we don't often think about it in those terms, that this is something that's obligatory upon all creatures, all those who have been created in the image of God. Absolutely. And I think it goes right to the heart of the universal duty of everyone to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, because the only way that you can worship and know this God is through Jesus Christ, his son, whom he has sent into the world. So the question of, you know, do we have a a universal obligation for repentance? Absolutely. Is everyone obligated to trust Jesus Christ? Absolutely, because God requires that there shall be no God before him and that everyone is obligated to own him as God. And you can only do that through faith in Jesus Christ. Why can I only worship God through faith in Jesus Christ? Because that's the way that the one true God has revealed himself and provided access 
So if you're going to know the true God, you're going to have to know him in the way that he's provided, which is Jesus Christ. So this commandment is something that is fulfilled by faith. Absolutely. How does faith work in our worship of God? Well, you take God at his word. You believe what he says. You believe what he's revealed about himself. So, for example, in this commandment, you take this and say, okay, this one true God who is full of grace and kindness, who says we are to honor him above all gods, have no other gods before him, is speaking to us that which is right as well as that which is good. We take him at his word and we humble ourselves to live in conformity with what he's revealed. And that's what faith is, taking God at his word. Yeah, one of the things I just want to draw, hopefully every time we talk about the commands of God, is that his commands are not burdensome. It's so easy for us to think, oh boy, the Big Ten, all right, let me just kind of, um, many people today would say, oh boy, it's like Christian putting his burden back on his back. Well, his burden wasn't the law. His right. burden was his sin. And the ways of God are good. I think when we see the wisdom of God displayed in his commandments, uh, why would we not want to worship God? Well, I've got a lot of sin remaining in my flesh that would get me confused about that. But to worship him is to experience life. To mm. declare his worth is what is good for us. We cannot worship God without beholding his glory. That's essential. I love some of the hymns that we sing, like, Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise thee. We say, I would do this, God. I would worship you. But... I can't in and of myself. I need you to come. I need you to work upon me. We're exalting the sovereignty of God and the way that he, he works deeply upon us, but it positions us to see that uh, it's no burden to obey the first commandment. Mm. It's an absolute delight to obey the first commandment. Amen. You know, it's kind of like a you buy a new car and it comes with an owner's manual and it tells you how to service it and how to keep the tires inflated and when to change the oil and you know how to keep all the fluids straight and uh, you read that manual so that you can get the best out of your car and you're not thinking, oh gosh, I've got to put gas in this thing or oh man, I've got to change the oil again. Or, no, this is how the car was designed to function optimally. Well, God created us in his own image mm -hmm. and he tells us this is how you will function optimally. This is the way you are to live as my image bearers. And he sets his law before us, of course, before we are converted. Uh, there's no way we can keep his law. So that law condemns us because it's a constant reminder of our failures. But once we become Christians, if you trust Jesus Christ, you're trusting the law keeper. You're trusting the one who's done it all for us. And so in him, you get what he has attained. So in Christ, all of his righteousness that he earned by keeping God's commandments is credited to you. And therefore, knowing that this law no longer can ever condemn me, I am free to pursue living it, knowing that I will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law by faith in Jesus Christ as I seek to keep God's commandments. And to that, I say amen. Amen. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from The Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.